like to be their home. You know, if you have two or three jobs in public and then maybe you're in private, you know, two or three jobs in private, we want our members to always feel like whatever career choices they make, they've always got a place to call home. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Life in Accounting. We are a podcast production of whereaccountantsgo.com. I'm Mark Goldman, a CPA and your host for this podcast. If you're a brand new listener today, checking us out for the first time, thank you very much. Welcome to the show. I hope you enjoy it. And if you are one of our long-term listeners, which I guess based on that description would be two shows or more, (laughs) thank you for coming back as well. We are a podcast that's all about highlighting the different paths that you can take when you have a background in accounting. And our guest for today is another great example of that. Amy Pitter joined us for this episode, and she is currently the president and CEO for the Massachusetts Society of CPAs. In addition to that, though, she's held high-level positions with the Massachusetts Department of Revenue, the highest, actually, when she was commissioner, and she's also consulted with the Australian Tax Authority and the IRS earlier in her career. So if the governmental space or association space is something you've been curious about for your own career, this is going to be a great show for you. Plus, Amy's passionate about diversity and inclusion, and so we get into her thoughts in that area as well, plus some insights into initiatives that they have going on there at the Massachusetts Society. This show is really jam-packed with value. If you do find value in this for yourself, please check us out online as well. You can find us at www.whereaccountantsgo.com. We have audio and written accounting career-focused materials there for you. We have blogs, we have books, we have other podcasts, and we even have a few tools for employers now as well. Normally at this point, I mention one of those offerings in depth and give some details, but like in the last episode, I wanted to remind you that if you enjoy this podcast, you can do us a great service by merely rating the show in your podcast app. Ratings help others find the show, and so you'll be helping someone else find this as a resource for their own career. I really appreciate you considering it. Well, with that, let's go ahead and get started. Here's Amy Pitter with the Massachusetts Society of CPAs. Well, hello, Amy. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Mark. It's great to be here. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, for the audience, Amy Pitter is on the show, and I sought her out for the program because I noticed her initially from the most powerful women in accounting list that is put out by Accounting Today. But then when I researched her background, I saw that she's consulted in the governmental space, specifically with taxing authorities, and that's an area that we really haven't touched on much, even in the last two and a half years. So this would be some good information for us. As if that wasn't enough, we then spoke briefly on the phone as well, and she mentioned her passion for diversity and inclusion. And we've had a few guests talk about that on the show, and so I know that's a good topic for us as well. Amy, before we get into your current role with the Massachusetts Society of CPAs and all the current initiatives going on there, I always like to start at the beginning so everyone understands you know, where you came from, so to speak. What initially led you to think about pursuing accounting as a possible career in the first place? So I was actually in law school, kind of going through the motions and enjoying the classes, but not enjoying the classes. Until my third year of law school, I took a class in tax, and I was 
this is great. And it's just intellectually stimulating and fun. And, you know, maybe not everybody gets that turned on by tax, but I sure did. So I went and got a master's degree at Northeastern University. They had a program there called the Northeastern University Graduate School of Professional Accounting. And it was a pretty interesting program. They only took you if you had never taken an accounting class. So they were really looking for liberal arts majors. I was a history major on the theory that it was the discipline of studying liberal arts that was going to really make a very well-rounded accountant. And I had a great time there, great program. And there were 45 of us and pretty much every single person went to one of what was at the time the big eight firms. And that's how I got started. Wow. I'm just curious, did you get a master's in tax or accounting? No, it was a master's in accounting. Okay. I just had to ask since you mentioned the the love for tax. (laughs) Love for tax. (laughs) So you went to one of the big A firms. I don't know much about your career before the consulting experience. So can we go through, I guess, the highlights and the milestones during that period? Sure. So this is going to come up a bit about when we get to the bad decisions I've made in life, but I didn't last long in public accounting. It was a different world back then. This was in the late 70s, early 80s, and it was not a great place for women at the time, to be honest with you. So like many kids today, um, not that long into my career, I got offered a job in private industry for more money and what I thought might be a culture that would be a better fit for me, and I took it. So that was it for me in public accounting until I started working in the Department of Revenue and started realizing the important role that CPAs play in the system. So then I was, you know, again, this was back in the 80s. I was doing a lot of, at the time, there were real estate limited partnerships and there were, it was kind of a good blend of accounting and law for me to do SEC filings and that sort of thing. And then I did my own work as a real estate developer. And then I realized if I took a job with the state, I would start getting a paycheck. (laughs) So that was really appealing. And that's when I started the Department of Revenue in 1990. Okay. The Massachusetts Department of Revenue? There's another one. I've heard there are a few. We have a particular view here in Boston. (laughs) (laughs) You're cracking me up. That's too funny. That's too funny. I didn't realize you were with the Department of Revenue that long. Oh, my gosh. Well, I was was there for 10 years. And in that time, I ran child support enforcement for a while, which in Massachusetts is part of the DOR. And then I ran taxpayer services for a while. And that was kind of what led me to the consulting gig that I did for 10 years after the Department of Revenue. I went with a consulting firm that had a specialty in consulting to government agencies, to child support agencies, and particularly to revenue agencies around the state and also around the world, which is how I wound up in Australia, consulting to the Australian tax office. Okay. I'm curious, were you a CPA at this point? or No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> With the yes, law background, I wasn't sure, you know, if that was part of your story or not. So, you know, and this is, you know, when we, when you ask about bad decisions and lessons learned the hard way and that, it was, I just left public accounting before I had sufficient experience to get certified. I passed the exam. I had the hours. I had everything and not making the best decisions in my twenties, something I really regret. I would love to have that certification. Okay. Well, you know, I'm glad you brought up the Australian piece because that was something that interested me because in the information I saw online, you know, mentions consulting with the IRS and then the Australian tax office. And I mean, it it seems like 
really interesting, challenging work. <laughs> I, was, I was curious how you got yeah. those opportunities and is it really as interesting and challenging as <laughs> you know someone from the outside might think? Tell us about that experience. So the Australian tax office was as interesting and as challenging and as fun and as cool as you could possibly imagine. So I was there for three years. My family and I moved there to Canberra, which is the capital of Australia. And the Australian tax office was in a very interesting spot when we moved there. They were actually pretty technologically savvy. This was in 2002. And then they got thrown a curveball. The state moved to what they call a goods and services tax. Some countries call it a value-added tax, a BAT. And they did it very, very quickly. And they did it without a lot of consultation. And they did it without a lot of prep time for the Australian tax office. So the Australian tax office moved from a very technologically savvy, very efficient, very good organization to an organization that was really in turmoil. They moved from electronic filing to manual filing because they simply didn't have the systems in place to manage this entire new tax regime that had been set up kind of overnight. In addition, the taxpayers were flummoxed. It was, I mean, really quite a different regime and people had so many questions and so much uncertainty and the ATO, the Australian Tax Office, didn't really have the wherewithal to deal with it all. So my company and I proposed to come in and do sort of a customer relationship management strategy and not just the new technology around you know how to manage customer calls, but really a new approach to how to have a different kind of relationship between the taxing administrative authority and taxpayers and have it be much more collaborative, the idea being that it shouldn't be a one-way street. It shouldn't be a taxing authority saying, here's how you all are going to do things, and then have the taxpaying community say, okay, thanks, we're on it. Instead, it would be a real dialogue about, well, what do your business practices look like, and how can we best integrate with your business practices to lower your compliance burden, make it easier for you to comply, and make it cheaper for you to comply. So that's what I did there for three years, was work not only on new technology to help them do that, but really a new kind of relationship between the taxing authority and the taxpayers. Wow. And the red wine there is amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for throwing that in. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Well, what in the world would pry you away from Australia then? Because it sounds like you were having a blast, and I'm sure, you know, from a personal standpoint, enjoying it, but definitely professional as well. What was sort of the next step and why? (laughs) Yeah, thanks a lot. Well, it was actually great, but, you know, it's a lot of personal things. My daughter, when we moved, there was two, and at that point, she was five. So it was like, well, do we want her to start school in Australia? Do we want her to start school back in the United States? And my parents were getting elderly, and it was, how far do I really want to be from my parents at this stage of their lives? So we really, we did go through a decision process of, are we staying or are we going, and decided to come home. And I was still with the same company, and at that point, there was this consulting gig with the IRS that opened up, you know, just after I came back to the U.S., and that's how I wound up consulting to the IRS, also for about three years. About three years? Okay. So... I'm assuming the commissioner of the Massachusetts Department of Revenue is the top position, for lack of a better term. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And that was, okay. you know, after, uh, while I was consulting to the IRS, this position came available at the Department of Revenue to be commissioner. And I have to tell you, I was 
super excited. You know, I'd been with the Department of Revenue for 10 years. I'd been deputy commissioner of two divisions. I'd spent 10 years consulting to other agencies on best practices and particularly in new ways of relating to the community. So the opportunity to not just help somebody to make some good decisions, but to actually be the decision maker and try to forge new relationships between the DOR and the taxpaying community was super exciting. We did a bunch of new stuff. We set up a taxpayer advisory board, which is still in operation today, which I'm pretty proud of, which was just, hey, let's get people who deal with the Department of Revenue in a bunch of different ways, whether it's CPAs or uh, CFOs or people who are representing low-income taxpayers, people who are representing senior taxpayers. And let's just get all those people around the table so that I, as commissioner, can really understand how our business practices are impacted folks and get some really good ideas. And that grew directly out of the work I did with the ATO, who had this very, very different approach. So I was really proud of that. And one of the things that came out of the meetings with taxpayers and practitioners was this concept of mediation. What I was asked was, look, why do we have to go to litigation all the time when there's a dispute? You know, it's expensive, it's uncertain, it takes a long time, there's risks on both sides. So while I was with the Department of Revenue, we put in a mediation program, and it was the first one in the country, I believe, and that worked great. It saved the department money, it saved taxpayers money, and I think it kind of changed the dynamic. You know, when you're in litigation with somebody, it's rarely pleasant, whereas with when you're in mediation with somebody, now you're trying to understand each other and actively trying to find a solution. So doing mediation was huge, and I was super proud of it. The other thing I did while I was at the DOR that I was really excited about was more on the staffing side. Like every CPA firm probably in the country, it's really hard to get great staff. In addition, DOR, again, like the accounting profession, suffered from a little bit of a lack of diversity. So we went into partnership with a local community college, Bunker Hill Community College, and we said, look, if we tell you what classes to offer, and we're happy to come in and present information specifically about mass taxation and the Department of Revenue, we will offer your students an internship with the Department of Revenue who are taking this very specific program. And if they're successful in their internship, we'll hire them. And that's exactly what we did. So it was just such a win all around. We got great people. We got very diverse students come and now staff. And it was just such a great option for the community college to be able to offer this direct career path for their students. So that was pretty cool, too. So I love being in the Department of Revenue. I really felt like I was able to do things that made a difference, and that's huge for me. Interesting. You know, I remembered the conversation we had, the short conversation about DNI on the phone and how that was a passion for you. I was assuming it was something, an initiative perhaps that you had taken up since joining the Massachusetts Society of CPAs. I didn't realize it went all the way back to your time as commissioner. Yeah. Intriguing. Interesting. Okay. Why, why is that such a personal passion for you? Is well, there a story for, there as well? I think there are a couple of stories. I mean, I think Looking back to when I first started in the profession back in 79-80, at that time, you know, being a woman in the profession was very difficult. And it was difficult for tons of reasons. It was difficult because when you looked up at management, you did not see anyone. And that was 
thought-provoking. You know, do I have a future here? It was also hard culturally. You know, when you're the only woman in a department with you know, 35 men, you don't always have the same stuff to talk about. And I always felt like, boy, I guess I better talk about sports because that's what everybody's talking about, even if it wasn't really my interest. So back then, I, w- I didn't think of it then in terms of diversity and inclusion, but in hindsight, in hindsight, that's what was going on. And that's the kind of thing that D&I initiatives today really take a much more sophisticated look at. So there was that. My daughter is adopted. She's from Guatemala and is a person of color. So there's that and the way we operate as a transracial family. So those are sort of, you know, personal hooks. There's also just always struck me as something that mattered a lot. Okay. Wonderful. What do you feel we're doing well in the area of diversity and inclusion. And then obviously, I'm also going to be curious about or where you feel we still need to make some strides. And I don't know if the right way to ask you this is with regards to the overall marketplace or maybe the accounting profession. So your choice on how you answer that. But what do you feel we're doing well? And then what strides would you like to see still made out there? Well, I think what we're doing well at the moment is there's really a burgeoning awareness of the topic, of the issue, and I think people are starting to understand the business case. I think if you go back even just a few years, there was a would-be-nice kind of aura around D&I. It's like, oh, yes, you know, when I have time for that altruistic, you know, uh, initiative. I'll get to that, but it's not really central to my business. It's a would-be nice. And I think people are now more understanding that it's not a thrill, that in fact, more diverse teams produce better than less diverse teams. More diverse firms and more diverse companies are more profitable than less diverse firms and less diverse companies. If you want to have the best and brightest talent pool available to you, you really have to be able to attract a diverse talent pool because it's a bigger talent pool. So I think people are starting to get. So that's changed the conversation a lot. You know, like McKinsey, you know, the consulting firm McKinsey came out just definitively saying companies that effectively tackle D&I are more profitable than companies that do not effectively tackle D&I. And I think that's starting to permeate the conversation. So that's a huge, huge stride I think we've made just in the last few years is that commitment to D&I, not just as a would-be nice, but as an actual business strategy and an important business strategy. So, so I think that's what we're doing well. But now it's, okay, so now it's a lot of now what? So how do we actually achieve that? And, you know, you hear a lot of things. You hear a lot of smaller firms say, oh, you know, the big four snap up all the good diverse candidates, or you hear about visa issues, you hear about marketplaces. So that's where I think the profession is now. It's like, this is really important, but either it's impossible or maybe it's possible for some, but not for me, and I don't have a clue what to do about it now. So we're trying to help at the society. I don't know if you're aware of CEO Action for Diversity and Inclusion. No, I'm not. So that's a pretty cool initiative. So that was a bunch of CEOs of very big accounting firms and other professional firms and companies. PwC was one of the founding members of it. I think Procter & Gamble was one of the founding members. And what they said was, look, we're not going to make this really complicated, but we know for sure that there are three things that if we as leaders in the business community did, it would make a difference. And those three things are 
pledging to have difficult conversations about race in the workplace, understanding unconscious bias and figuring out how to deal with it, and sharing best practices and, frankly, worst practices, right? Like what works, what doesn't. So they created this pledge, the CEO Action Pledge. Well, there are now 700 signers of the pledge, and there's stuff behind the pledge, mostly in the area of sharing best practices. So these big companies have said, look, we've got loads of collateral. We've got unconscious bias training. We've got best practices, and we're going to make that available to folks who want to play with us, who want to sign the pledge. So the MSCPA signed about a month ago, and since then we've encouraged a bunch of our firms to sign. We've had 10 firms sign, which is so exciting. And as a sort of a leadership group, we're going to get together and start working out training around unconscious bias, uh, forums to share best practices. So you're sharing best practices amongst the firm. Yeah, so we're starting as kind of a leadership group, sort of a D&I steering committee in the profession in Massachusetts with the help of, you know, when I say 10 firms that sign, that's 10 local and regional firms. You know, the national firms and global firms, many of them have signed, you know, up a level. So we're going to work together. We've got a CEO action steering committee. We've got a professional day of understanding scheduled for the fall. and We'll be part of a national group doing that. CEO Action does an unconscious bias bus, and they they come around and do trainings and forums. So we're going to get our member firms who are interested to that next level of being able to actually take action to try to improve the diversity and inclusion in their firms. So it's really exciting. I think my goal is to actually move the needle. It's not just to talk. And I think that we're doing the stuff that will actually move the needle. I will say that the way we think about D&I here at the Society is we think of it as kind of a continuum from middle school, high school, college, and then into the profession. So we do a bunch of initiatives, as do you know many states, but we have programs going in the middle schools. We have the high school programs. We have a program that we do in the summer, an accounting awareness program for high school kids from low-income and minority areas to just introduce them to the profession. We have business case competitions. We have real-world accountant panels. We try to introduce everybody to the CFO of the Red Sox, but we can't always do that. <laughs> but um, but we'd like everybody to think that one day you could be CFO of the Red Sox if you pursue this career. And we're trying to take a very, very comprehensive approach. And I'm excited. I think we're going to get somewhere with this. I really do. That's exciting, yes, and, and congratulations. I mean, to get 10 firms at the local and regional level is a major accomplishment because, as you alluded to, the particularly the local firms, you know, they just don't have the same resources as the national firms. And so for them to make that commitment and devote the biggest resource of time to it, yeah. that's, wow. And they didn't just say, sure, you know, yeah, we'll play. It was more like, yes, we're in. We want to be part of this. We want to take a leadership role in this. I mean, it was super exciting. Wonderful. And for those not from that area, can you tell us a little bit about the society itself? I mean, obviously, it's the state level. What's the approximate membership? And and, and I'm curious how you spend your daily time, because I think those of us not involved in associations, you know, may be surprised. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> sure. So unlike Texas, um, many other states, we don't have chapters. We're um, just a statewide organization. We have 11,000 members. And I think the way I approach kind of what we should be doing kind of at a practical level for our members is I always think of it in three tiers. I think 
well, what are we doing to enhance the profession? Because that's something that benefits our members, but not all of them can be actively engaged in helping the profession. So that's a lot of the stuff we've been talking about, the pipeline stuff, the DNI stuff, also advocacy. You know, we're up where the AICPA is advocating at the national level, we're advocating at the state level with the Department of Revenue, who I have a very good relationship with, by the way, (laughs) Um, the Board of Public Accountancy, the state legislature. We're also always thinking about branding. We feel like, you know, every time we can get a thought leadership article into the paper, either by somebody from the society or one of our members, it builds the brand. You know, people read about CPAs and maybe think about CPAs in a new way. We did some interesting social media campaigns, branding campaigns about the value of CPAs. They were actually pretty funny. So that's, you know, kind of at the professional level. Then to your point, at the firm level, local and regional firms just don't have the resources that the global and national firms have. So we try to provide those resources, right? For example, we do big leadership development series. So the big firms do that internally, but if you've only got, you know, one emerging leader or two emerging leaders, you can't really set up a program for them, but we can aggregate those one or two leaders from 10 or 15 or 20 firms and put together a really nice program. So we operate at the professional level, the firm level, and then the individual level. You know, what can we do to help people's personal and professional development? What courses can we offer? What networking events can we offer? And what fun can we offer? You know, can we have a trivia night, a Red Sox night, a Bruins night, a bowling night? And people change jobs much more frequently than they did in the past. I can't remember the statistics on the average number of jobs somebody has, but we'd like to be their home. You know, if you have two or three jobs in public, and then maybe you're in private, you have two or three jobs in private. We want our members to always feel like whatever career choices they make, they've always got a place to call home. They've always got the committees, the relationships they've built in the committees, the relationships they've built at our networking events, and they have that home base. So that's kind of how we look at the society. For me personally, it was interesting. I was talking to some of my colleagues And there seems to be a trajectory for many CEOs that I seem to be exactly following, which is that the first four or five years, it's really an internal job. You know, as you're working with your staff and your board and your processes and your technology to try to make the society as strong as you can possibly make it. And then after that four or five years, you start looking externally and you start thinking more about getting out into the field and getting up to the state house and doing podcasts and writing op-eds and so forth and being more of, because now, you know, hopefully you've made your society so strong that you have a team in place that can keep things running really, really well internally for the benefit of your members. And now you can turn outside to even have more of an impact. So I'd say I'm kind of in that transition period now, trying to do more externally because I have a heck of a team here. I really do. They're just amazing. That's a great position to be in. I need to write them a thank you note because they made it possible for you to be on the podcast. So (laughs) thank you. (laughs) Well, with your background, I couldn't resist but ask about this. And you knew in advance, I'm hoping it's not a difficult area to discuss, but you've consulted with the IRS. You've consulted with the Australian Taxing Authority. You've run a State Department of Revenue. I'm curious what your thoughts are on 
the taxing system, you know, in whatever way you would like to talk about it. The future issues you see now or areas you'd like to see changed, uh, you know, maybe it's perfect. I don't know. <laughs> I'm curious what your <laughs> thoughts are because you're, you're very educated and knowledgeable in this area. So, so you know, my education and knowledge in this area, just to be clear, is really tax administration more than tax policy. How can a taxing authority make it as easy and simple as possible for taxpayers. And so that's kind of where I come from. You know, it's interesting, at the Department of Revenue, you think that the way you increase revenues through audit and through collection, it's just not true. The way you increase revenue is by increasing voluntary compliance. I mean, we have a voluntary tax. And the way you increase voluntary compliance is by doing two things, making it easy for people to comply and making it hard for them not to comply. So from a tax administrator's point of view, you make it easiest for people to comply when you make your system accessible as possible, right? So you have as much online filing and easy ways to get answers. You know, the difference between having a two-hour wait to talk to a tax examiner and a three-second wait for a tax examiner is the difference between somebody who's going to give up and decide not to find the right answer and not to comply properly and somebody who is. So, you know, I don't know if how many folks you've talked to about this, but my members say that this last tax season was the worst tax season they've ever had. And I think a bunch of stuff came together, you know, tax reform where a lot of stuff changed. There was a lot of new rules and regulations. Some of them were not particularly well thought out and certainly not particularly well documented. That was added on to a bit of a, a little bit of the, the tail end of a shutdown and just really increasing lack of funding for the IRS. So exactly the opposite of everything you want. Instead of making it easy for taxpayers to comply, it was very hard for taxpayers to comply because they couldn't get answers to their questions. So I mean, I think the first thing that comes to my mind is the IRS needs to be adequately funded. The IRS needs to have a really well-functioning practitioner unit because when you think about it, and this was my approach when I was at the DOR, it was certainly the ATO's approach is Practitioners, CPAs, that's your best intermediary for taxpayer compliance. If you have a practitioner who knows the answers, knows how to get problems solved, they're going to represent hundreds at least of taxpayers. So the best way to increase voluntary compliance, which is where the money is, is to take care of your practitioners. Make sure they're getting answers. Make sure they're not waiting two hours on the phone. Have it be three seconds and have them talk to somebody who's really knowledgeable. Don't bounce people around. And that, in many ways, is what's going to make the biggest difference. When I was at the DOR, we also put in a new computer system. The IRS needs to do that, too. And it's going to be hard and expensive, and they've been trying to do it as long as I can remember. Somebody's got to do that, and they've got to do it right. So that's kind of the most immediate and most obvious stuff to me is you have to put the systems in place where you're talking to your taxpayers, you're understanding them, you're responding to what they need in order to comply, and then you're doing it. So I don't know if it's the sexiest answer, but that's what I think needs to be changed. One could also think way in the future, you know, with technology and everything, you know, I'm sure you've heard about the concept that well, the IRS already knows so much about us, the DOR already knows so much about us, that they could just send us 
a bill or a refund at the end of the year. Um, I do think that eventually I could envision a system where tax compliance just became a part of normal transactions and wasn't a separate activity. And I think someday that's what we'll see, but that's way in the future. Okay. Thank you. I couldn't let you get off the phone or get to the final questions without that. <laughs> a little, maybe a little selfish on my part because I really wanted to hear the answer, but thank you. That really was a good answer. And I didn't think it was going to be a humorous part of the show. That's <laughs> like, <laughs> well, I do end every podcast with the same three questions. And so I want to be respectful of your time. We probably should get to those. The first one's usually the easiest for the guest. From a career perspective, what's been your proudest moment? So it really was becoming commissioner at DOR. I'd been sort of working up to that moment through probably the previous 25 years of my career. So being able to get in that chair where I was going to be able to do the things that I had consulted on and thought about and dreamed about really for years, it was really a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. I'd be remiss in saying that I also really love being CEO of the MSCPA, but that was uh, very special for me. Definitely. Well, you alluded to this before, so now I'm really curious what the response is going to be. Second question, tell us about the lesson you learned the hard way. And obviously, the the more you can tell us about the situation, the better. Yeah, so, and it's interesting because, you know, now I'm in a position of counseling kids to make sure they get their certification and maintain their certification. And if you leave public accounting and go to a, a private firm that doesn't really support your maintaining your credentials, fight back. But there's, you know, the dirty little secret is that I made that exact mistake back in my 20s. I think that at the time, I wasn't thinking long term. You know, I was thinking, I don't like where I am. I'm being offered more money and what feels like a good opportunity. And instead of realizing that life is really much more of a marathon than a sprint and, and you should really be thinking 10 years in the future, not 10 minutes in the future, I wish that I had stayed in public accounting long enough to get certified, and I wish that I had sort of fought through the culture wars a little bit and had a little more confidence in myself to just be myself in that environment. And I think I would have gotten a lot out of it, and I think my colleagues would have gotten a lot out of it also, and then I'd be so proud to be able to have CPA after my name. That's kind of the story, and it is. It's a lesson I really learned the hard way. And I never thought, you know, 40 years ago that I was eventually going to be the CEO of the Mass Society's CPAs and, you know, and it would be great to be a CPA. And I was so close and let it go. You know, you're in a unique position to give that advice, though, because there's a lot of CPAs that say it's great to be a CPA. But to have someone with your background and experience saying, hmm, I wish I would have done that, you know, and be able to share that message with students is a little more rare. So, hmm, interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. Well, last question, and then we'll go ahead and close it down. What is the best piece of advice that you've ever received? So, This was from my boss in Australia, and that was when I was in Australia, I was really transitioning from kind of being a manager to being an executive. And what he said to me was, you really need to do less, and you really need to think more. And it's very hard to make that transition, I think, for a lot of emerging leaders to say, look, the reason you've gotten so far in your career is because you're good at what you do, and now you have to stop doing it because you've got staff to do that. So what you need to do is turn the corner, get out of your comfort zone, stop doing, and start 
planning, strategizing. What about my team? What about my clients? What's the big picture? And not sit there with spreadsheets or PowerPoint presentations, which felt really good. So I listened to him. And with his guidance, I think I was able to make that transition. But it was hard. But it was great advice. And I think great advice for anybody who's trying to make that transition in their career to take it to the next level. Wonderful. Well, thank you, because actually this show is all about, you know, continuing to move forward in your professional career, and your life in accounting. So that's really perfect advice for our audience and, and me, frankly, today as well. So <laughs> thank you. Glad I could help. <laughs> well, for the audience, this has been Life in Accounting. We are a podcast production of Where Accountants Go. If you haven't yet visited the website, please do come out and check it out. We have a tremendous amount of career-related content for accountants. We have other podcasts, of course. We have blog entries. We have other publications. Just a whole lot of information there for you. Once again, that site is www.whereaccountantsgo.com. On that note, Amy, what's the best way to find out more about the Massachusetts Society of CPAs? What's the website or or what's the best way to contact you guys if someone's in that area and would like to get involved? Sure, we'd love that. So one thing is our website. Because there are a lot of MSCPAs, because there are a lot of states that begin with the letter M, our website is mscpaonline.org.org. So come to our website. My personal email is apitter at mscpaonline.org. If you would like to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Friday at 5, just drop me a note and I'll get you on the list. People love that newsletter. It's filled with lots of interesting news and updates. So we'd love to have you. And thank you, Mark. This was great. No problem. No problem. Thank you for being on the show. Well, thank you to the audience as well. We appreciate you joining us. We will see everyone next week. There's more to come.